Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail. We're turning our attention to the unfolding situation in Papua, where a New Zealand pilot has been taken hostage by separatist fighters. Indonesian authorities are searching for a Kiwi pilot taken hostage by rebels in West Papua. The group is threatening to kill Philip Mertens unless the Indonesian government gives the province independence. Engulfed in flames on the runway, Philip Mertens' plane was set alight after he was taken hostage. The Papuan military have taken me captive in their fight for Papuan independence. Our demand is clear. They support Indonesia, supply firearm, war equipment, and also they train Indonesian military and police to kill with Papuan for the last 60 years. So we, so we need to talk with New Zealand government face to face. Christchurch man Philip Mertens has been taken hostage by the West Papua National Liberation Army, the TPNPB. They're just one of the groups that has for decades been demanding West Papua's independence from Indonesia. There's a desperation among uh, Papuan independence groups that no one in the international community is really listening. Uh, And this has been dragging on many years We'll come back to RNZ's Johnny Blades later in the podcast. He'll tell us what it's like in West Papua. But first, Dr. Cami Webb-Gannon from Australia's University of Wollongong. She's an expert on decolonisation in the Pacific and West Papua. And as she explains, the background to Philip Merton's capture is complicated and covers post-war decolonisation, Cold War politics and the growth of indigenous independence movements. When Indonesia won its independence from the Dutch in 1948, it decided that it was going to um, work to take West Papua with it um, to become part of the Indonesian Republic. The Dutch and West Papuans had a different idea for West Papuans. The Dutch argued alongside West Papuans that Papuans were ethnically and culturally different to other Indonesians and therefore required their own nation state. And so the Dutch had begun to work with West Papuans to um, prepare for political independence. In 1961, on December 1st, which is a um, very significant day for West Papuans because it's it's the day that they decided upon their national symbols, a national anthem, um, adopted a flag, the Morning Star flag and other national symbols. So after 1961, when the New Guinea Council, it was called, um, worked with the Dutch to set up the foundations of a political nation state, Indonesia decided to commence military incursions into West Papua. They weren't going to, they they were not going to let Papuans and the Dutch um, go ahead with their plans. And as the the military incursions were resisted, Indonesia threatened to go to communist powers, to Russia for weapons and for support. Now, this was the era of the Cold War. So the United States and other regional powers were very concerned about a potential communist Indonesia in the region and decided to, they decided to appease Indonesia. The United States at that time it was instrumental in negotiating an agreement known as the New York Agreement between Indonesia and the Netherlands. West Papuans were never consulted. And in this agreement, West Papua was handed over to temporary administration by the United Nations and then to administration by Indonesia. 
Part of that agreement was that there would be a referendum to be held in 1969 and to be overseen by the United Nations. And in that referendum, West Papuans were to be given the choice to vote for independence or for permanent annexation to Indonesia. What actually happened in the referendum was that less than 1% of the West Papuan population was handpicked to, um, to vote. So it was not a representative vote by any means. Um, they were threatened with violence by the Indonesian military if they did not vote for permanent integration with Indonesia. And the United Nations turned a blind eye to all of this. So since that time, the international community has essentially treated West Papua as part of Indonesian territory even though the majority of analysts, of um, external observers who were in the territory at the time have reported that the referendum was a complete farce. And that was 1969. Since that time, Indonesia's occupation of West Papua has been characterised by um, extreme violence, human rights violations, um, environmental and cultural dispossession and a, a whole gamut of other very unfortunate um, events, mass displacement, um, disappearances and political repression. And this is what West Papuans have been fighting for for six decades is independence from this rule for a right to exercise their own self-determination. I want to emphasise that um, largely this has been a peaceful struggle, that Papuans have been fighting for independence, not through violent means primarily, but through um, attempts at international diplomacy, negotiation with the Indonesian government and through civil resistance, including um, protests, demonstrations and increasingly social media campaigns to attract worldwide attention to their plight. Over the last six decades, Indonesia has kept a tight grip on West Papua. I asked Kami why. There are several reasons why Indonesia is loath to... Um, acknowledge West Papuans' claims to sovereignty in their own territory. Probably the most um, significant is that, uh, that West Papua is home to the largest gold and copper mine in the world. It's mined by a company, an American company, Freeport McMurrin, which pays extremely large revenue to the Indonesian government. So the Indonesian government stands to lose an you know, unfathomable amount of money if West Papua um, is no longer under their control. Well, can, can we just go over why Philip Burton's, you know, a Kiwi like this? You know, I think in your column you said he was called a nice guy. That was from the Sydney Morning Herald. Why would he be caught up? Just, you know, he's a pilot, nice guy, New Zealander. Why would it happen to him? That exact question is what has spark this international media curiosity about attention to this case because we all are probably thinking well you know in Australia or in New Zealand we think oh that could have been someone I know who's a pilot so this person is just incredibly unlucky he was in the wrong place at the wrong time so the Duga region where he went the reason he was captured was because it is a hot spot a political military hot spot at the moment he landed in a place where the guerrilla army, the TPMPB, is very active at the moment. So that's why it happened. But why did it happen to him? Well, 
he was flying for a commercial airline. I've read that he was flying to support his family. He'd had a series of job losses because of COVID for other airlines. And so he'd returned to fly for this Indonesian airline, um, which happened to have him placed in, Pop- in West Papua. RNZ's Johnny Blade spent years covering the struggles in West Papua. It's difficult for journalists to get into the area, but he did in 2015. It felt good to finally get there after kind of reading so much. And, and it is a beautiful place. Uh, and it was exciting. And it was good to be there. But it was also, it quickly became apparent, it's pretty, there's a, there's a, certain, there's a certain heat to it. Uh, like a climate of fear. When you, the more Papuans you spoke to, you realise they weren't really free to speak out about stuff, you know. Um, and you just know that there's security forces all around the place, you know, there's military posts frequently, uh, but there's also police and intelligence agents. Uh, it's a highly militarised part of the Republic, and, you know, um, it's quite different to other parts of the Pacific. You know, and I, I include West Papua as part of the Pacific. Uh, I include the Papua region of Indonesia as part of the Pacific because, you know, it's Melanesian people are the indigenous people and they certainly consider themselves Pacific people. So as a journalist, were people following you around a bit? Yeah, there were people following us around, definitely. Um, you could just, I mean, I remember the uh, rumours staying in, in downtown Jayapura. Jayapura is the capital of Papua province. Uh, I'd open the curtains in the morning and um, there'd be some dude always just across the road. You know, it was quite open. I'd wave, he'd wave, but... Yeah, you just, you, the guy we were travelling around a bit with, he would often just say, oh, that, see that guy back there, you know, that's he's just following us, it's okay. I mean, it's sort of normal a bit, I suppose, <laughs> in terms of what they're used to. Local journalists have it very hard, you know, they, they're under some, you know, real pressure uh, from, from security forces in terms of how, how they're able to report. Did you ever feel scared or threatened at any point? Well, I did feel a little, it felt a little hairy when we were sort of held in a room by police when they were checking our papers uh, uh, and, and I had been accused of not properly checking in with police when we entered the country, we, when we entered Papua from Papua New Guinea through the land border with Papua New Guinea. Uh, I mean, but I'd sort of checked out before with the government. I'd asked them what was necessary, and I'd done everything that they told me in terms of what was necessary. So I guess it was just someone else's version of what was necessary. And But while we were being held and while that was being sort of sorted out on the phone, I guess, with whoever, uh, it, it was a little worrying, you know, because it just it just uh, felt like, oh, no, anything could happen here. You know, they could just decide we have been, you know, breaching some sort of rule and therefore you know could be incarcerated you know we did have permits to work as journalists there so that was uh that was something in our favor but it was just a bit of a worry knowing that you know it's we're really in their in their hands so what did you think when you first heard the news of the pilot being taken hostage like a kiwi being taken hostage Oh, bad news. You know, it's not good. It's not a good thing for the Liberation Army to have done. But I, I understand that they are desperate. They're desperate because they, neither them or the peaceful activists who have been sort of pursuing in, uh, Papuan independence, uh, either exiled or in Indonesia, uh, have been really listened to by the international community. And um, 
they want international, the international community to do something about it because it was the international community who were sort of um, well complicit in the arrangement uh, through which Indonesia uh, took control of Papua back in the 60s. Kemi Webb-Gannon says what's happened to Philip Mertens isn't unprecedented. Immediately it reminded me of the hostage-taking situation in 1996. And this was quite a, um, a tragic situation. In It took place in the same area, Duga Regency. Um, it, it was in a village called Mapanduma. It was an opportunistic, like in this current situation, hostage-taking, where there was a group of researchers from the World Wildlife Foundation. Some of them were from the Netherlands. Some of them were from the UK. They also had... Indonesians as part of the party. So they were taken for nearly five months. The two Indonesians with the um, who were taken hostage were killed very tragically, but the Dutch and English contingent of the group were released and they have been vocal since that time in talking about their experiences. They revealed that they were relatively well looked after, that the people who had had taken them hostage and the other local people who they were living with over that time had looked after them as well as they could, given them as much as they could in terms of food and other resources that they could share. I have looked at some of the pictures that have been sent by, um, by the TPMPB of Philip Mertens. It looks like... And they've gone to pains to show that he is being looked after as well. He's clothed, he's got a hat on, he's um he he doesn't look happy, but he's wearing a West Papua, a free West Papua t-shirt. He he's been saying that he West Papuans are demanding independence and he won't be released until they receive their um demands. The Papuan military have taken me captive in their fight for Papuan independence. But he also said Papua Merdeka. Which means free West Papua and had his fist in the air. So this was coached, obviously, to what extent he now comes to support what has come to support what the West Papuan hostage takers are asking for or that to the extent that he's just uh, as a hostage is saying what they have asked him to say that he say that he remains safe. It's not possible to know. Okay, so the government here in New Zealand hasn't really said too much on this at all. They've been pretty quiet. You know, our Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins, pretty much saying nothing. Consular support is being provided to the family um, and You'll be familiar with the fact that in these kind of cases, we keep our public comments on that to a, a bare minimum. Do, do you think they should be saying more? This seems to be standard practice in hostage-taking situations, whether of an international or a national level, where the negotiators release and reveal very little information about what they're doing in order to ensure the safety of the pers- of, of the hostage but also not to reveal their hand and give more power to the hostage takers. In saying that, it does seem that it does seem like that the government, the New Zealand government voice is absent from the broader contextual discussions about the 
the potential motivations or the the, um, the political situation in West Papua, which has led to this hostage taking event. And in my view, it would be helpful um, to to the whole situation if the government was able to acknowledge that some of the West Papuans' concerns are legitimate concerns and if the New Zealand government would commit in future to talking about these in an honest, upfront way with the Indonesian government, this would go some way towards not not appeasing the hostage hostage takers necessarily because that's not something that, you know, that's not a done thing. They don't want to encourage further situations like this to take place. But in acknowledging the severity, the tragedy of the situation in which the pilot is caught up in and sending a signal to West Papuans that their plight is on the international agenda, is noticed and is important. I guess New Zealand, the New Zealand government might be being careful because they don't want to get offside with Indonesia. And if they said something like that, that could anger Indonesia, couldn't it? That is that is always a danger, and so they're trying to carefully weigh up their relationship with Indonesia against wanting to get Philip Merton safely home. Um, and the problem with kowtowing to Indonesia consistently as the New Zealand government and the Australian government and, and countless other governments have done over the decades is that by willfully ignoring this the 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 conflict in West Papua situations like this will continue to happen so even if they are safely able to um, remove Mertens from this situation by refusing to address the deep political grievances held by West Papuans which have prompted this situation, they're setting the scene for this to happen again. So there are these difficult tensions um, in this situation and it does, it, you know, it, it's, it makes sense that the New Zealand government has been very quiet, but it also seems like that their voice is a, a notably missing voice in the wider conversation around why this has taken place. So how can we actually resolve this in terms of negotiating? Like the Liberation Army have some quite, quite serious demands. They do. So they're saying they're not going to release Mertens until Indonesia has recognised West Papua's independence. Obviously, that's not going to be something that the Indonesian government recognises as a result of a um, hostage-taking situation. Negotiation is a process of give and take. What's going to need to happen is that some kind of compromise is um, is reached whereby the Indonesian government agrees to meet with leaders of the West Papuan independence movement and to talk openly, frankly, honestly, to listen to their, um, their deep-seated grievances and their claim that they have a human right to self-determination and to move on from there. So it might not be that the demands of the um, guerrilla army are met immediately. They may never be met, but at least Indonesia needs to agree to meet with West Papuans as equal partners at the negotiation table. And that might be a compromise that goes some way towards meeting the um, some of the demands of, of the hostage takers. Is there a role that New Zealand could play in resolving the broader conflict? Here's Johnny Blades again. I mean, it's a funny one because Papuans look to New Zealand. They know that there's been... When I say they, they're the activists, the people who pursue independence through non-violent means, 
have quite a long history of sort of, you know, engaging with New Zealanders to get the conversation rolling to try and lobby the government here to do something about Papua. Because New Zealand is seen as a, an honest broker, you know, in the region. And remember, we have been involved with peacekeeping efforts in the Bougainville conflict, Bougainville being a part of uh, Papua New Guinea. There was a civil war there that killed something like 10,000 to 15,000 people uh, in the surrounding crisis. New Zealand, it took New Zealand rather than Australia to be able to successfully broker a peace deal. It's a huge foreign policy success. You never hear about it. It should be being sung from the rooftops. Singing in harmony for the first time in nearly a decade. After 10 days of negotiation at a second round of peace talks, the Bougainville rebels and officials from the government of Papua New Guinea stood side by side. It was New Zealand bringing uh, the leaders, the various factions over to New Zealand uh, to spend some time together on a marae, to talk, talk over differences. And it broke through to a lasting peace solution, you know, and they just had an independence referendum just before the pandemic where uh, they actually, a non-binding referendum I should say, but where Bougainvillians overwhelmingly voted for independence from Papua New Guinea. Now how Papua New Guinea is going to respond to that is still being sort of decided on. But what I'm saying is New Zealand is looked upon as a bit of an honest broker and perhaps it could play a similar role in Papua. There's a desperation among uh, Papuan independence groups that no one in the international community is really listening uh, and this has been dragging on many years while it's a bad thing that they've taken someone hostage and the last hostage crisis in that sort of area in the 90s that was a protracted thing it lasted for months and ended in bloodshed even though most of the hostages were freed uh, it doesn't bode well I mean because uh, their demand that uh, They'll only release them if, if independence is given or if New Zealand starts negotiating that. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Uh, but something should happen, and that should be dialogue, where maybe New Zealand and Australia can help facilitate some proper dialogue whereby Papuans can uh, actually be properly empowered to run their own region uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, there needs to be talk. There needs to be peaceful outcomes because this, this conflict has gone on for many years and some estimates have it that hundreds of thousands of people have died. But it's such a blind spot and no one can really get in to verify it. There's a lot more military in Papua now and bad things are still happening. And uh, certainly that the fighting in the Central Highlands region has, has not abated. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Johnny Blades and Cammy Webb-Gannon. Ka kite anu.